Hey, awesome people. Matthew chapter 4 we're going to read. I'm going to start from verse 1 through to verse 11. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, then, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. Uh, Good morning, everybody. My name's Darcy. I'm one of the people here in the church. And if you're in youth church right now, if you're in year six to year eight, your program is about to start now and you can head out with Brent and Mike. Um, So yes, we are looking at the passage of Matthew 4, 1 to 11, not the Timothy one that was on your screen earlier. I think that was a typo from last week. But anyway, we're going to get right to it. So how about I pray before we start? Lord, we just pray as we uh, open your word, we might look carefully into what you have to say for us, and I pray, Lord, that we might draw out the implications that the author had in mind for, um, for us today. Amen. Okay, so I wanted to start us off today with a realistic, hypothetical situation. Imagine yourself, close your eyes for a second, imagine yourself a poor goat farmer living in first century Palestine times. Okay, you have a small family and you live in a remote area, probably a day's journey from the nearest city or town. And because of your remoteness, if a battle or king comes to take over a land nearby, often the battle happens at the city and you don't, it doesn't impact you directly. But there are implications for you because you live near this land. One day you get up at dawn and you come out of your tent and you notice a man riding towards you on a horse. You see that he's a soldier and he's carrying a scroll. He rides right up to you and he opens the scroll and he says, To those of my kingdom, the gospel of Caesar. Okay, you can open your eyes now. All right. What are you thinking before he even reads the actual gospel of Caesar that this gospel may contain? If you are... Um, a first century time Palest- uh, Palest- century Palestinian um, goat farmer, what are the things you might have heard? In fact, actually, if you lived in that time, it possibly is not even the first gospel you may have heard before. 
Other kings and rulers are defeated by older ones and new gospels come out and new proclamations of who the new king is. You might be thinking that this might be a proclamation about new taxes. It might be a proclamation about who you need to pray to now, who you need to give tribute to now. You'll probably start seeing Caesar's face on coins and on statues. This is, after all, the gospel of Caesar. It's going to be important. It's going to be different to the old ways. But why did I get you to put yourself in the mind of a first century goat farmer? Well, for two reasons. It's because when we read the Gospel of Matthew, we need to remind our 21st century brains of just what context this book was written in, in order to understand the author's meaning. I believe it's actually our duty to do that as Christians, to understand Matthew the way that Matthew intended us to. And second of all, because this is a gospel that we're listening to, it's a moment of the announcement of a significant change in kingdoms. However, it's also not the announcement that we were probably expecting. Now, we're going to need to do some hard work and understanding this text in its own merits. In fact, you'll actually need to keep your brain in big picture mode as we do, and we look for some indicators that remind you of Old Testament scripture, because there's a few. So to do this, I've actually rewritten Matthew's gospel to have a slightly longer name in order to to allude to some of the bits that his gospel actually contains. So this will come up on the screen. Uh, It's already up there. So we're going to cover Matthew's announcement of the heavenly kingdom established by the unfailing Messiah, Jesus the Christ. So I've color-coded these things in uh, the different colors to help you guys as we go through it. But we're actually going to go through it in the reverse order that it's written. So that is, we're going to deal with the establishment of Jesus as Messiah first. Then we're going to look at his unfailing nature compared to other biblical messiahs. And then we're also going to come to the establishment of the heavenly kingdom last. Now, the fulcrum or hinge, I got points if I mentioned fulcrum in my sermon with the purple passage, guys. But the hinge that all this relies on is essentially Matthews 4, 1 to 11. So because it's here that we actually see that Jesus is not going to fail where other Messiah figures have, but he also rejects all ideas of what an earthly kingdom is. So this passage is significant to us, but also significant to Matthew's gospel because it's actually the turning point for what he actually says the gospel of Jesus is actually about. So Jesus is Messiah first. Okay. So Matthew, as a good first century Jewish writer, first establishes that Jesus as, as the legitimate Messiah from the, that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was actually leading to. He does this, does this by pointing out seven Old Testament indicators. These are things that you as readers are meant to say. It reminds you of something. This is meant to make, be familiar in some ways. Now, this might be hard for us at first. In fact, I had an experience once of going to the cinemas and watching... Uh, Avengers Infinity War and for the first time back in 2018 and uh, at the end of the movie I promise no spoilers but the end of the movie where Nick Fury is trying to press a button on a beeper and a symbol came up I found the entire three rows in front of me jumping for joy they noticed a symbol coming up on the screen and they were all excited I also noticed they're all dressed like Marvel characters at the time probably diehard fans myself not so much of a diehard marvel fan was sitting in the back not really sure what was going on with the symbol 
because I wasn't on the in of what was happening here. So let me help you trying to get on the inside of what's actually happening. But actually, Matthew is going to do the same thing anyway, because Matthew has a similar phrasing every time he wants to remind you of something from the Old Testament. The phrase goes something like this, and hopefully it's on the screen, marked in blue. The phrase goes something like, This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. Or something like, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. Okay, similar phrasing each time. Now, each time Matthew uses this phrasing, we see before or after the phrase a reference to the Old Testament prophecies. That should be coming up on your screen now as well. So let me summarize some of these for you because I don't want to spend all this time going through all the, all the backstory to them. But the first one, 1 to 22 and 23, is Jesus' reference, uh, sorry, it refers to Jesus being from a virgin. 2, 5 to 6 refers to Jesus being from Bethlehem. 2.15 refers to Jesus being from Egypt. 17 to 18 refers to Jesus being from death or a generation that was killed in order to try and find him and kill him. 2.23 refers to Jesus being from Nazareth. And then 3.3 is actually a reference to John the Baptist and him being from the desert preceding Jesus. Now, these references are also meant to remind you of other parts of the Old Testament. Bethlehem is meant to remind you of David and his birthplace, David being a failed Messiah figure from the Old Testament. Egypt is meant to remind you of Moses and the Israelites and their time in slavery under Pharaoh. Young children being murdered by a ruler is meant to remind you of Moses in the basket and in the Nile. Another significant Messiah figure again. John the Baptist from the desert is reminding us of Israel's time in the desert, being brought out of the desert into that promised land. All of these to help the reader to see that this man is the Messiah of the Old Testament that the Old Testament has been leading towards. He's the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. But Matthew actually has one more that we've skipped over. should be on your screen now as well. He opens his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. Now, we're not going to read the entire genealogy here, but notice right at the end of the genealogy, you get this section that says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14. Why is there three sets of 14 here? Okay, three sets of 14, or it's actually six sets of seven here. Jesus being the seventh seven at the end of the line. The seventh seven being the Hebrew symbolism for the completeness. Jesus being the completed completeness. He is the seventh seven in the series. So Matthew has set up with these little breadcrumbs throughout, the, uh, throughout his gospel, here in the start of his gospel drawing attention to Jesus being the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is that new and better Messiah who has the same credentials of past Messiah figures, but as we see in a moment, he's not going to fail like other Messiah figures did. So this brings us now to Matthew chapter 4. Let me read it again. I know you've heard it already, but let me read it again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil is actually a Greek word here meaning accuser or slanderer. It's not his name, it's a title. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands, so that you will not strike a foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, After, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Okay, a few things to notice here at the start. Why there are three temptations is important, as three signifies a time of trial. This is an old Hebrew indicator of a time of testing. And thus, Jonah is three days in the belly of the great fish. Abraham is three days on the mountain before he is asked to sacrifice Isaac. And Jesus is three days in the grave. Three signifying, signifying a, time of, a time of trials and testing. But thus also, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Again, this is meant to make you think of Israel in the desert for 40 years as God is testing them before he brings them into the promised land. It's meant to signify this time of endurance. But now the tempter comes and let's look at each of these temptations one at a time. The first temptation, the tempter takes him to the wilderness, a Hebrew place of chaos and unorder. This has actually significance all over the Old Testament. The wilderness actually in ancient times was known as this place of unorderedness, of de, of decreations um, place. And thus also you see in Genesis 2, 5, where God is creating out of the wilderness, out of the place of the desert. And he asked Jesus, if you are really God's son, come and eat. Take for yourself what you need to sustain your body. Don't wait for God to, prov to provide you his provisions. You can just take it for yourself. You have the power to take for yourself and sustain yourself. Just take it and eat it. Does this remind you of anything from the Old Testament? Matthew is alluding here to Genesis 3. Jesus is enduring the same temptation here of Adam and Eve. Matthew is quite clearly alluding that Jesus is the new and better Adam here as he endures the same temptation. But Matthew is also leading us to see that he endures the temptation of God's Son in a way that is unlike other Messiah figures such as Adam who don't and he doesn't fail. Jesus answers the tempter with scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I know you're trying to trick me, he says, into abandoning God and taking for myself, but I know I cannot sustain myself without him, which is probably what Adam and Eve should have said to the serpent in the garden. Their sin was not so much taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that they took for themselves, setting themselves up as God and not allowing God to be God. They decided that they would be better gods. Okay, next we come to the devil taking him to a holy city and has him stand on the pinnacle of the highest point of the temple. Again, the place here is significant. The uppermost place of God's dwelling 
is a literal fall from God's presence. And the tempter takes Jesus' cue from the last temptation and he quotes scripture at him. Again, this is meant to make you feel a bit like Genesis 3. Did God really say the following? It's meant to make you feel like that. So he says, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is a direct quote from Psalm 91, verse 11, which again, the significance of where he is is important, as preceding these verses in Psalm 91 actually reads, If you say, The Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling... No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. The tempter here may be feeling a bit perhaps like he's like sometimes we have felt where we feel like we've trapped somebody with their own words. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He doesn't fall for it literally or figuratively here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, he says. A statement which is kind of like a double-edged sword because he says that he will not fall for the temptation that is offered to him, but also accuses the devil of tempting God with his question. Finally, the third temptation. The devil takes him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, the place here is significant for the Old Testament. A high mountain is most often most often sometimes uh, in the Old Testament and Mount Sinai, is a place of significance where God speaks to his people, most often some sort of representative. He lets them know who he is, how you should worship him, and what it is to live under God's rule. So again, this is an Old Testament reference Matthew is drawing out Perhaps the most obvious reference is possibly with Moses and Elijah and they're dealing with God on the, on the mountain, but there are some others as well. And so here too, the devil is trying to set himself up as a God figure. The devil here is trying to be as in the position of God, having Jesus as the position of man and have him bow down to the devil. But notice also within this temptation what they're viewing here. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Maybe you've actually been up on a quite a high mountain. I've been up on a few, not, not very high, but just ones here in Australia. I don't think you can view all the kingdoms of the world from just one mountain. You possibly can't even view the entirety of just one kingdom from a mountain. You can see quite a bit, but not quite that much. I don't actually think that's what Matthew is trying to make us think here. What I actually think he's trying to draw out is that all these kingdoms of the world have a similar nature to them. They have a similar glory. That is, a glory that is inclined towards sin, in the same way that Satan is inclined towards sin. Now, Jesus doesn't actually bow down to Satan and give in to their temptation, but notice also, he doesn't say, actually, Satan, those aren't your kingdoms, they're mine and I control them, and I will retake them, and I'll take them for myself, not because you offer them, but because I already have them. He doesn't say that either. No, what he actually says to Satan is, be gone, and he says, then he says, as it is written, worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, it's as if Jesus is saying here, I reject all the kingdoms of the world. 
This is not my kingdom. My kingdom is not just different from these. It's actually unlike all of these kingdoms and unlike the glory of all of those kingdoms. We know this because what does Jesus do in the very next section? Thanks. Next slide. Thank you. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, verse 23. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't want those kingdoms, those earthly kingdoms. He has his own kingdom to bring about, a kingdom that is actually unlike and in many ways opposite to all those earthly kingdoms. Matthew here is not just the next soldier bringing the message of the latest gospel of the warlord who overthrew the last warlord. Matthew is crafting here a gospel that is unlike every other gospel proceeding beforehand. But then what is this kingdom? What is this gospel exactly? How will you know it? What's the significance of it? What are the tax laws that might be enforced here? Are there tax laws? How is it different from earthly kingdoms? Well, it's funny you ask that, says Matthew, because that's what he's up to in verse in sorry chapter 5 now. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them not just them but all the people there to listen again the mountain is significant here as it marks god's revelation to his people but now jesus is speaking to his people on the mountain as if he is the god figure and instead of just one person like we had with moses we actually see a group of people now Jesus, as the God figure, is revealing to him, revealing to them his kingdom, but they are speaking to him face to face, in person. In fact, actually, if you've got one of those red letter Bibles, love them or hate them, you'll see that the entire next three chapters is just a continuous stream of Jesus explaining what the new kingdom looks like. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. In fact, it's actually a rejection of them and all their glory. It's an establishment of something entirely different, an opposite, an opposite kingdom of the earthly kingdoms. Now, if you're not familiar with chapters 5 to 7, please go home and read them. But actually, even if you are familiar with them, it's probably worth going and having another look. Because Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor and those in mourning, and the merciful and the meek. He says, Love your enemies. He says, Pray in secret, not in public for all to see. He says, don't store up earthly treasures, but give to others in the way that you would have given to you. This is not a normal gospel of a new king. Imagine again as the poor goat farmer, Jesus coming and and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not these are the new tax laws. This is who you need to pray to. This is how much money that the king is requiring from you. No, it's blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says instead. So, but if you're not convinced first just based on this alone, then let's look at where actually Matthew's heading because he's leading to the coronation of this king in his kingdom. He's leading to the cross in his gospel. But instead of seeing a king coming on a horse with robes and crowns and soldiers and all sorts of uh, great coronation ceremonies, what do we actually see? We see a guy naked, nailed to a cross, 
with a crown of thorns, dying as everyone insults him. This hit me again recently, actually, when I was reading a book called How God Became King by N.T. Wright. If you're a reader, I suggest having a look because it's a great book. But in the book, they refer to this passage in Mark 10, 35 to 45. It's also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, but I'm going to use Mark's version because that's what the book used, and I think it's slightly more to the point. It's the passage about how James and John come to Jesus and they ask, can we sit on your right and on your left in your glory? They wanted to sit on his right and on their left in the glory. The glory that they imagined was a crowning moment for Jesus. But what is Jesus' crowning moment? Where is Matthew leading to the coronation of Jesus being crowned as king of this heavenly kingdom? It's up on the cross. And where, who do you see either side of Jesus, on his left and on his right, on the cross? Two more robbers who are also being crucified. Probably not what James and John had in mind when they were asking Jesus for this position. But this is the nature of the, of the upside-down kingdom, of the heavenly kingdom. It's a kingdom that is valuing completely different things to what an earthly kingdom is valuing. So what do we do with all of this? What are our implications for us today? Well, we've seen that Matthew is pronouncing the heavenly kingdom established by the unfailing Messiah. We've seen how his pronouncement of this gospel hinges on and it draws attention to the fact that this gospel is actually a rejection of earthly kingdoms in chapter 4. This leads to the establishment of an upside-down heavenly kingdom that values things like humility instead of power and servanthood instead of might. This is the, kept, the heavenly kingdom established by the unfailing Messiah, Jesus Christ. But what do we do with, 20, uh, with, uh, with us as 21st century people? Well, let me draw out something for Christians first. Two things for Christians. One, that when we read the scriptures, we need to be careful to read and draw implications that the author intended us to see. I think that in many of our minds, as we read the Gospels, we have too much Paul in our heads as we read it. And we quite often read, this is the way God deals with my sin. This is the way that I avoid hell, right? Now, all of that is true. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to say that that's not the case. But that's Paul's intention with his, with his messages, with his letters. What Matthew has at mind, what he is more concerned with, is the coronation of the new Messiah, the bringing about of the new kingdom, the one that the Old Testament was leading towards, the one that they've been waiting for all this time. What does it mean to live in the light of God's kingdom? In fact, what does it mean for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? What does it mean to follow a king who died on a cross, a king who taught us to love our enemies and seek meekness instead of mightiness? Jesus' death does deal with our problem of sin, and it does deal with the problem of, of looming death and destruction and hell. But, Je but Matthew here is pronouncing a coming, a long-awaited coming Messiah who did what no other Messiah figures were able to do. Not Adam, not Moses, not, Ma not David, not Solomon, or any other Messiah figures you could think of from the Old Testament. So let's let the authors of Scripture speak to us the way that they intended not trying, to keep, uh, not trying to read one book into another or have our intentions at heart when we read the different books. Let's let the author speak to us. 
But also, second thing, if you're a Christian, if you count yourself part of the kingdom, and if you count yourself a follower of Christ, then let's accentuate this, these things of this type of kingdom. As Christians, we need to live as if humility is more important than might. We need to value servanthood in our lives, not power and stuff. We need to stop looking a place to, for a place to make ourselves look good and amongst our peers and start looking for a way to, make, to, to serve one another as the body of Christ. Living this way is actually contrary to our sinful flesh desires of me first, me instead of you, me over you. It's actually a rejection of earthly kingdoms like that, as we saw in chapter 4. And it's a choice for an upside-down-like heavenly one. Christians need to emulate this kind of kingdom in their lives. We need to live as this God's kingdom. We, we want to bring about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And secondly, if you're not a Christian. I hope that if, or actually, if you're not a Christian or if you're new here today, I hope that what I've walked you through in Matthew has actually helped you to understand the gospel of Jesus and what it's actually all about. Please notice that the gospel is not about taking from you in the way that a new ruler would set. It's not about taking, enforcing new tax laws. It's not about setting up a new system where we praise a certain Caesar because of how great and mighty he was in some significant battle. You're actually meant to notice the oppositeness of the kingdom to all earthly kingdoms here. You're meant to notice the rejection of the earthly kingdoms in chapter 4, where he was tempted by the devil, just like other Messiah figures. But you're also meant to notice a man not crowned on a throne, but crowned on a cross. Really, for a non-Christian, the question is, do you want to be a part of a kingdom like that? Do you want to be a part of a kingdom that values these things over what earthly kingdoms do? a part of a kingdom established by an unfailing Messiah, Jesus. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that Matthew has pronounced to us. Help us, Lord, to live in light of your kingdom. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please give us our earthly needs as we need them, but help us to store up in heaven the things of your kingdom and not on earth the things of earthly kingdoms. Help us also to forgive others as you have forgiven us. We know, Lord, we often forget the upside-down nature of your kingdom, particularly when others have wronged us. So help us when we forgive and value forgiveness over might. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.